basically. Because okay. everybody was your friend at the time. <laughs> yeah. In so, elementary in school. In elementary school, everybody was your friend. Um. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, we have another sociology friend, Mimi Nguyen. She has a lot of different video projects that focus on Vietnamese diaspora. But what's really awesome is that she and her friends recently made a short documentary called Flagged. But what's super, super cool is that it was nominated as Best Canadian Short in the 2017 Vancouver Asian Film Festival. Yeah, that's pretty cool. On this episode, Mimi shares her childhood memories growing up in a predominantly white town. We discuss the differences between first-generation and second-generation immigrants and her projects to empower second generations. She also takes us through the history of the Vietnam War and discusses the Vancouver Vietnamese community's relationship with the heritage flag. Last but not least, we talk about how problematic the Broadway musical Miss Saigon is. So yes, there are major plot spoilers. My name is Cecilia Federizon and you're listening to Visible Minorities. Welcome back. Uh, today we have one of my good friends, Mimi. And Mimi and I, we met, I guess, in your first year and my second year. Yes. Because I was your frosh leader. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were fun times. <laughs> so Mimi, um, why don't you give us a quick introduction of yourself? Okay. Like Cecilia said, I'm Mimi. <laughs> and we met in university. Am I allowed to say what which university you yeah, Is that I, that's fine? We we've been yeah. saying UBC. Oh, you've been saying okay. Well, I decided to major into sociology when well, first of all, I didn't know what sociology was, but I heard about it like when, many people. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I I heard about it when I was in high school actually. Really? When I was in grade eleven and this person well it was the end of my grade eleven year, and yeah. this person who was in grade twelve, they were like, Oh, maybe I'll study some sociology when I get into university oh and then in my head I was just like what is sociology (laughs) (laughs) but like of course it's like the study of society and how we interact with each other and Mm -hmm. how we understand and make sense of the things around us right so Mm -hmm. first year I was kind of already banking on the on the fact that I was going to go to sociology because I was always wondering about oh why do we act this way and why do some people don't understand that we're not in this position because we were born this way but because Mm -hmm. the environment influences us and I kind of came to that sort of understanding as a person of color yeah um when and I was just thinking about my experience of being the only Asian person in my community when oh, I was younger oh really yeah no I grew up in Langley when I oh, was oh I didn't know that oh well no you're in for a treat I thought <laughs> you always lived like no. in this area no 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 no, oh, okay. no. well actually my parents they came to um East Vancouver uh-huh. so I was living here until I was uh five years old I went to kindergarten in East Vancouver and then we decided to move to Langley I don't know why but we moved (laughs) to Langley (laughs) and uh there were no uh Asian people there except for my sister and maybe like this other family in that time I didn't feel like it was a a hard like hard experience for me I didn't feel like I experienced much discrimination Mm -hmm. at that moment of course Mm -hmm. and then when I moved back to East Vancouver the Asian community was a lot bigger yeah and I had time to reflect on my experience because I always had good memories of Mm -hmm. Langley I think the most prominent one that made me really angry was well like you have to like understand that I was a I was a child so I was the ages of six to twelve and in my head I was just oh maybe I'm just being too sensitive and I should probably Mm. have like gain more of a sense of humor and I should laugh along because everybody else was laughing right right? so I guess one prominent uh, example I have was when I was in grade four so what would I would be nine right yeah I was nine right Uh, all of a sudden all my friends like these kids start calling me like chink Oh, right, what? the C word, right? Really? Yeah. And then in my head, I was just like, why are you calling me that word? I'm not even Chinese. I'm Vietnamese. <laughs> and then I told them that. I was just like, why are you calling me that? I'm not even Chinese. And then, yeah, because yeah. That, that's the real problem. I'm not Chinese, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So <laughs> at age nine. At age nine. And I was like, why are you doing that? And they're like, well, if you're not Chinese, then you shouldn't be offended by it. So we can call you Ching oh, and it should be okay, right? In my head, I was like, well, that's kind of logical. But at the same time, 
it makes me angry. Yeah. And I didn't have the heart to tell any any grown-ups. Yeah. Because you don't want to be a snitch to your friends, right? Yeah. Because when you think about, when, as a kid, when I thought about what, what does it mean to be racist, it means, like, actually attacking you from yeah. your own race. But because of that logic that they gave me, I was like, well, they're not really attacking me because I'm Vietnamese, right? Yeah. So I guess it's not really a problem. And so I came home, and I remember my mom was, like, in the kitchen. She was preparing dinner. I was like, Mom, these kids... They, they keep calling me that I'm Chinese because I didn't know how to say chink in Vietnamese, right? Yeah. There's no... I don't think there's, like, like any... Well, but there probably is, but I can't really think of it. Like a derogatory Like a derogatory term to yeah. call Chinese people or, like, Asian people because you are Ch- Asian, right? Like, yeah. nobody's going to call you out. Like, hey, Asian person. Everybody's Asian, <laughs> right? So I was just like, yeah, these kids think I'm Chinese, and it really bothers me. Like, what should I do? And she... And, and, you know, there's, like, a language barrier, and she yeah. probably doesn't understand... She probably didn't understand the depth right. of how hurtful this word was. And she was just like, well, you know, then just go along with it. Is there any... Is there anything wrong being Chinese? And in my head, I was just like, well, I guess not. Like, Chinese people aren't that bad, right? So <laughs> I guess that's fine. Yeah. So I just... I Like, I think that lasted for a couple of months or so. Kids were mean those days. Yeah, I think at that time... I think there were, like, a lot of comedians that were coming out. Mm-hmm. And I just remember watching some Russell Peters. Oh, and yeah. Some, he, and like, some, came out in, like, 2007-ish. 2007-ish, yeah. So, like, it, after, I don't know, what happened in grade four, I think a lot of the kids just started picking up on the internet or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Because internet was kind of sort of a new concept at the time, right? Right, right. <laughs> right. And then, like, I think they started having access to it. And then, like, it just progressively kind of got more... I don't know, a little more aggressive. Really? Yeah, but at the same time, I was just like, you know, it's fine. I'm probably a little bit sensitive. Yeah. And I should probably just laugh long. It's fine. <laughs> right? And there were, like, little things. And I remember when I was in grade seven, there was this one girl who really hated my guts, and I had no idea why. And I, and like, and it wasn't just this one girl I always felt like I was the odd one out uh-huh. um like I was never the cool kid I was, okay, I was yeah, never yeah, part yeah. of like the popular group and and I was just like well like there's nothing wrong with me but I think it was also because I dressed a little bit differently oh and, I and see a little part of me deep down was just like well maybe it's because you look a little bit different than them mm-hmm. right yeah and and like me my the clothes that I was wearing was of like a little bit different because I think we all kind of know what immigrant little kids wore yeah. when they were younger, right? They wore like the gap clothes. Yeah, the gap and, clothes. And the Adidas pants, yeah. right? So I was kind of living in the 90s of, you know, East Vancouver in the, <laughs> in the 2000s where all these kids were wearing like Rush and all these like oh, yeah. a little bit more expensive clothes. And like, yeah, my, and I hate to, you know, play on the typical immigrant family and whatnot. And like my parents weren't as affluent as these, as these families because mm-hmm. these parents were like, dentists doctors and like salespeople and my parents were refugees who um just came here and they started their life with nothing but Mm -hmm. they came a long way because you know at that time they had two houses to themselves oh wow yeah yeah we were doing fine i think my parents were just you know smart people at saving things right like you don't need to wear high-end brand stuff (laughs) as a kid so yeah like i dressed a little bit differently and uh the food that i brought was a little bit different oh you had that experience i had that lunchbox experience yeah no and thinking back to it i kind of feel a little bit angry because it's like damn my my mom's cooking is delicious and then at the point we didn't know how to like i didn't know what like a western sandwich was so I didn't really know what went in a Western, like a, a square breaded sandwich, right? Right. I, I remember going home and I don't actually remember having that experience, but it just happened. I just remember being at home and like my parents were trying to figure out how to make this white like white sandwich. <laughs> and then we brought home tuna once and then we were just like, so what goes in this tuna thing? <laughs> and so we were, like, looking around the house, and my mom just brought out some uh, fish sauce, yeah. which is, like, a very Vietnamese thing. She like, yeah. fish sauce in her tuna and her sandwich. And to be honest, it was a really good sandwich. <laughs> it was pretty tasty. But uh, it was a learning experience because when whenever I brought, brought Vietnamese food, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of, like, had the smell. 
Yeah. And, like, it was an unfamiliar... This other smell. This other smell. Right. Yeah. And it was unfamiliar to these kids. And, it, like, at that time, we didn't... That school didn't have a cafeteria, so you had to oh, bring your what? own lunch. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was kind of weird, too, but it's fun. And it was also the first time I ate cold food. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that time in elementary school, that was a time when I didn't eat lunch at school. <laughs> yeah, I remember bringing uh, Vietnamese subs. Uh-huh. Bun right? Yeah. You, you've had bun Yeah, of course it, I have. Is it good? Do you <laughs> yeah, like it? Yeah, I like it. Yeah, okay, but have you ever had it the next day? You know the smell that comes out of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I brought that up once to school. I remember it was in grade one. Mm-hmm. And I love bun mi. Like, bun mi was something that I feel like I kind of learned that from my dad because he loves Vietnamese sandwiches. Right, right. And the bread is, like, the best thing that you can eat. So I was so excited for lunchtime. I opened it. And then this kid next to me was like, ew, what is that smell? It smells like garbage. <gasps> yeah, and I was just like, uh, excuse you. This is the best sandwich ever. But I said that in my head, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I was so taken aback by it. I was like, how do you not like me? <laughs> yeah, I was kind of like a little bit sad. And I didn't really bring any more of yeah, that food. Yeah, for so sure. So I brought like, we, like my um, sandwiches that... I don't know, like Frankenstein sandwiches. You don't really know what was yeah, in it. But, um, and then uh, we bought Campbell's soup, like from the can. Oh, so yeah. Bought- I had those for lunch, too. Did you like that? In, like, a thermos. Did you like it? I actually did. You did? Yeah. Okay, because I didn't. <laughs> okay, you know what? Okay, to be fair, though, we didn't know how to work a thermos. Oh, okay. So it was cold. Oh, yeah, I see. So it was okay. cold soup. And then I brought it to school. I opened it, and I smelled it. I was like, this... Is so gross. I can't eat this. But the kids around me were like, oh, is that like Campbell's chicken noodle soup? You're so lucky. I wish my mom packed me chicken noodle soup from Campbell's. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, you want to eat it? It's so gross. I can't do it. Yeah, so I never, I never really finished my lunch. And I, I think that kind of concerned my mom. Cause, right. Because after, she would pick me up and she was just like, did you eat all your lunch? And I was just like, uh, no, not really. And then, you know, she'd like bring it home and then she'd like make me eat it. Mm, yeah you know so that was that was kind of my food my lunchbox experience right though I do remember this one time there was this one girl who surprisingly enough was the same girl who ended up hating me for no reason which I will explain later okay yeah (laughs) this girl she one time I had um rice and then I had I think it's called jigma is it called jigma I I don't know it's like this core um, root and it's white and so it's it's like kind of sweet when you cook it. So okay. I had stir fried chigma with um, pork, mm-hmm. it was really good. And that's what you had. That's what I had that okay. day. So I had it. I opened my my Ziploc bon, uh, like box and then she looked over and she was just like, oh, what is that? And then like I showed her and she was just like, oh, can I try some? It looks interesting. Like it looks good. Uh-huh. And so like I let her try and she was like, oh yeah, that's pretty tasty. <laughs> and then I was like a little touched because I was just like, oh my food but now that I think back and I don't know if I'm just making this up yeah but um later on she like she didn't really like me afterwards and I she told me later and she was just like well oh and I have to tell you she's she's a dog lover okay so uh, okay like, see where this is going so okay you know, she she hated me and then she uh, later on she was just like oh yeah I didn't like you for a very long time because I thought you ate dog meat that's it yeah. And she's like, I thought you ate dog meat. Because I thought that's what you did. Oh my god. And I was, no, I don't eat dog meat. I don't know anybody who does, but yeah. okay, that's great. I'm glad I you don't really hate me anymore. I wonder where this dog meat came from. Mm-hmm. Like, the stereotype. Mm-hmm. Like, where where did where did this idea that Asian people, or like Chinese people, because, mm-hmm. you know, apparently Asian and Chinese are equivalent. Yeah. Like, I, I don't understand how Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe it has something to do with Orientalism. Probably. Yeah, you know what? I think it goes back to that time where people didn't really know too much about other communities. So right. they just kind of... Just assumed, like, this monstrous kind of... Right, and, and you know, like, the stereotype... Uh, the stereotypes of indigenous people of being, you know, cannibals? Yeah. Because I... Wait, what? Okay, well, okay, okay. I don't want to perpetuate that idea. But, um, you know, I feel like every community has some sort of stereotype, some sort of, like, stigma around different communities. And like, the types of food that they eat, you mean? And, like, the stuff that they do, 
right? Because, right. like, you don't know this other community. You might think that, oh, they're, like, primitive or, you know, they're not right. civilized, yeah. right? So in that colonial guise, you kind of think that, oh, they probably don't know any better and they're probably savages, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, there was a stereotype among yeah. the community that indigenous people or, um, like, First Nations from North America yeah. um they had tails, and they ate, you know, people, and they had oh, fangs. And so, so the, this is the Vietnamese, like... I don't know if it's a Vietnamese thing, but I think it's just kind of like a stereotype that's been hovering around the community. Oh, okay. And, and I don't know how far it, it travels around or yeah. whatnot. So I don't yeah. know how that idea got infiltrated yeah. in the first place. And then he was telling me, oh, and then I went to the movie theaters, and then we saw, like, the, like, Indian and Cowboys movies, and these people didn't have tails or fangs, and they looked like normal people. So I have no idea where those stereotypes came from. I was like, right on, Dad. Right on. <laughs> right on. Great, Great observation. Yeah, good observation. <laughs> good, good for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the whole idea about, you know, Asian people or Chinese people like, eating dog meat, I think that that's an idea that's been kind of blown out of proportion. Because yeah. I do know there are some communities um, who have, who do eat dog meat. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... I don't know if it's true, but it, it kind of makes sense. But, like, some communities, maybe they eat dog meat because they don't have the food to mm-hmm. eat there. Or it's, like, it's it's whatever's available. I feel like I've heard, I'm not sure if this is true or not. What I heard is that, you know, if, you, if you're living in poverty, especially mm-hmm. in the Philippines, like... If and like what you said, if there's not enough like food, there's mm-hmm. not enough money. They have to eat dogs. Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate. Makes sense. Yeah, though, right? and you can't really blame people for it. And 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 again, you know, animals. We eat other animals. So what makes us like here in this side so high and mighty about? Oh, you can't eat dogs and yeah. cats, right? Because we eat chicken and Poor, pigs, and, pigs and, and cows. Yeah. And those are the things that are considered nor- quote-unquote normal. Yeah, normal. And like, yeah. people have roosters as pets too. Yeah. But no, but like, I think that, again, there's always this um, the stigmatization because I know in Vietnam, like even among Vietnamese communities, yeah. and this is something that I've kind of like myself and some of my group mates who are in this program we mm-hmm. did this short film about the Vietnamese community here in Vancouver mm-hmm. we kind of tackled on oh what does it mean well sort of kind of indirectly but what does it mean <laughs> to be like someone who's from northern Vietnam and when right. I say when you're from northern Vietnam I'm not saying oh you were born in northern Vietnam but like they they're also um, considered in that category as well, but people mm-hmm. who you know have families who have a northern Vietnamese accent and whatnot, and there's always this kind of discrimination against these people in Vietnamese community just okay. because of that war, right? Because it's just like so, like there's this discrimination in like Vancouver. I mean? would say so. Oh, okay, I would say so. There's always it could be subtle, it could be more um, outright there, but yeah. it is there. Yeah. Um, going back to Northern Vietnamese people and how they're kind of like the other group yeah. some, for some people yeah. um, because of that um, resentment about the Vietnam War and being like, oh, you are the reason why that country is a communist country. Yeah. Because a lot of people here are were refugees and they mm-hmm. left because of the communist regime or because of the situation, like because of the economy that happened. Yeah. Right? And so sometimes... Like, I've heard, oh, yeah, no, like, only northern Vietnamese people eat dog meat. Ooh. So, I feel like that... And maybe that's another way to, like, dehumanize, like, yeah, other groups. For sure. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the, the idea about Asian groups or certain groups eating dog meat, I feel like that's something that other communities have placed on other communities that they right. don't really understand much or have some sort of resentment towards. Mm-hmm. So, going back to that girl, she probably didn't know anything about, you know, who I was or, like... Or I don't even know if any of these kids knew the difference between Vietnamese people or Chinese people, right? <laughs> given the story that I gave. But, um, yeah, so that happened. And just thinking back towards it, and I don't know if this is real or not, but like she sometimes kind of performed in a way where it's, she kind of glorified Asian culture. Asian culture, I'm doing oh, air quotations. Cool. Okay, right? yeah. So um, I remember this. Like one. a westernized Asian. Yeah, so I remember in Halloween. Oh, no. Halloween, she dressed up as a geisha. And I think Memoirs of a Geisha came out that year. Oh. So, um, 
yeah, she dressed as a geisha, and sometimes she'd have sushi and stuff, like, he ate chopsticks, which, you know, I kind of, like, semi-applaud for her for doing that, because mm-hmm. at the time, nobody really ate sushi in Langley. Right. Right? Because they were yeah. like, oh, why are you eating that? That's kind of weird. So, <laughs> I don't know. Like, she could have been really interested in... I don't know, Asian culture. Her, like, hair. her imagination. Her own imagination. Asia but is. also, is that an exoticization? Probably. Right? I, I would say so. I don't know, from my perspective, as yeah. someone who received her discrimination on her end, yeah, would think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like there there is a line between, you know, admiring and, like, being respectful of a community that you're mm-hmm. not part of, but then there's also the other side where you're just, like, fetishizing it yeah. and, like, exoticizing it for your own good. And, like, in her case, a little bit of appropriation. Yeah, a little appropriation because, like, she didn't even befriend me as the only Asian yeah. kid there. She hated me, right? Yeah. Right? If it only does her good, yeah. she will, like admire asian communities yeah you know asian in air quotes yeah yeah Yeah. that what made you reflect on these like instances that made you like really angry Mm. because you said Mm. at that moment you're like oh uh it's nothing wrong it's something to do with me you know to be honest high school is a long time ago for me (laughs) oh same (laughs) so i i just remember the feeling of it i don't remember the exact time when i had that epiphany Right. But I think Tumblr kind of had a great effect on me. Oh, yeah. You know? The Tumblr days. The internet was yeah. a great help. Um, I had Tumblr, and then I was learning about racism. And then mm. sometimes I was reading some posts. I was like, yeah, right on. Yeah, that makes sense. And <laughs> I, I think it's... But I feel like deep down, I knew there was something wrong about it. It's yeah. just that I didn't have someone to share it with. Yeah. And even though I had a sister, and she, I think, like, she has her own understandings with it, so it was kind of harder for me to talk to her about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but deep down, like, I knew something was wrong, and I didn't really have somebody to relate it with me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Tumblr, the internet, everybody, you know, it's everybody around the world. And somebody, yeah. at least, is having this similar experience yeah. as me so you know that's where my realization came from that's so interesting because i feel like well i always assume that you just grew up in vancouver you were born here right i was yeah i was born here yeah yeah and like at least for me going to elementary school i was surrounded by other filipinos mm. so i never felt that but you know you'd always hear the stories and you'd see it on like tumblr yeah, and like um, the TV, the TV show, like fresh off the boat. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like later on, you know. Yeah, I'm gonna have to talk <laughs> about that later. I'm gonna have to talk about that later. But but yeah, no, it, it's it's exactly like. Hold up, I'm bringing up my academia. Okay, it's either Franz Fanon or oh shoot, who Stuart Hall. So we've mentioned Stuart Hall and Franz Fanon, who are well-known theorists in sociology. Stuart Hall's work focuses on cultural studies and identity theories. One of his many theories is something that's called articulation. What he argues is that identities articulate, or defines, people. It brings people together. This articulation implies that there are differences, and boundaries of what this group is not. Basically, the articulations of identities influence our thoughts and actions about these identities. Franz Fanon speaks about the fact of blackness. He argues that, as a black man, he is only viewed as a subject of white colonialism. The black man cannot exist without the relation to the white man. In order to achieve reason and civilization, the black man must adapt to white western culture, because blackness is dehumanized. Hall and Fanon have complementing theories about culture and race. Both theorists have a lot to say about how race relations exist in culture and how they came to be. I personally loved using them in all of my papers. Yeah, I, feel, I think it's Stuart Hall. I think, like, what Stuart Hall is saying that, oh, you don't realize you're an other until someone points it out yeah. to you, right? I think Fanon also talked about that, too. Fanon? Yeah, because yeah. I think Stuart Hall, I remember his example about walking down the street and someone calling him, oh, hey black man and then at that moment he didn't know he was a black man until someone pointed out that he was a oh, black man yeah and then he got a phone call from his mom and his mom said oh so what's it like being an immigrant he didn't know he was an immigrant until his mom pointed it out 
Oh, I was an immigrant. Oh, that's so interesting. Right. Yeah. For I, I feel like Fanon also talked about how like this little girl started getting scared of him because he was black. Oh, you know what? Maybe I'm mixing the two, but I. Pretty but sure. like yeah, they have very it. similar like theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About race, yeah. you always like use them at the yeah, in the know. same essay yeah, about race. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was my experience in Langley, and so <laughs> I tend to reflect. And and I'm kind of half grateful about it because that's one of my passions of wanting to explore more about. Mm-hmm. And so some of the things that I want to focus on is empowering, um, you know, not only people of color. But also from my background as a second generation Vietnamese Canadian. So I want to give uh, people of color some voices, but most especially um, people who came here like immigrants, but they don't really speak the language mm, of yeah. host countries here. So example A, my parents. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they're weak. It's not what I want to like portray. Mm-hmm. I'm not playing a high mighty position be like yeah i am your savior <laughs> and i'm giving you voice but like because so often and i think you understand this but people who don't speak the language they have like people won't listen to them because mm-hmm. you know there's no way to understand them yeah right and, and even like having an accent yes yeah. for sure there's always a stigmatization about and having an accent and also there are so many people like I think about my dad. He is a very smart man. Yeah. And you can tell that if you speak Vietnamese to him. But yeah. he, when he speaks his broken English, you kind of think like, oh, like, what does this man know? He, yeah. he doesn't have an education. Mm-hmm. He doesn't speak English, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that really makes me angry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, like, as the, when you talk about immigrants and refugees, there's always this... And I hope we're shifting away from this idea now. But there's always this talk about, oh, they should be grateful for being in this country. And um, the, they owe the country and they should show the country gratitude and whatnot. Yeah. But so often people don't know that, well, yes, it's great. We, like, I am grateful for being here and for, you know, Canada, for accepting my, my dad and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the whole story is that Canada didn't really provide him the tools to integrate into society. Oh, yeah. And for him to succeed, like, him having two homes, he did that himself. He didn't get any support. Where was the welfare? Where was all the, like, the language classes? Because mm-hmm. most often when you, when you hear about language courses, they're all booked. You, you hear all these comments about people it's like oh you don't like it here you can just go back home to your home country and it's like well no <laughs> <laughs> excuse you we're like these people are as much as this community as you are because they're also building they're also contributing to the economy mm-hmm. they're having children mm-hmm. example a <laughs> i am a child oh i was a child and i am you know pursuing post-secondary education not saying that if you don't pursue post-secondary <laughs> education there's a lot of warnings here i'm not saying that if you don't pursue post like secondary education you're not you're not any like less yeah, than yeah, else, yeah right sure. but like at least i'm trying yeah. Right? I want to give back to the community. Yeah. Just like anybody else. Just as any, quote unquote, like, as a good citizen would do. Yeah. Right? So, they're like, you have no right to say that, oh, you know. Well, everybody always has something that they want to change about yeah. the country that they live in. And I think that's a good thing because that just means that you're proactively thinking about ways to improve yeah. your society. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I feel like what really also gets me angry is that whenever you do critique, you know, your country, like Canada. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things to critique about Canada. Oh, yeah, for sure. But then, like, people start assuming that you're not proud to be Canadian. And, again, it goes back to what you were saying, how, like, oh, why don't you just go back to where you came from mm-hmm. if you're not happy with it? Well, why? Well, I'm just trying to make it more inclusive for everyone. That kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, what do you what do you have against of being nicer to people, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with sharing our resources? <laughs> yeah, right? Golden rule, you know? Sharing is caring. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Um, but yeah, so that's why I got involved in those video projects. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel really great because not only am I, you know, showing other people a different perspective of, of what an immigrant... Mm-hmm. or a former refugee mm-hmm. um, would experience in the first time being in a new country. Mm-hmm. Because so often that story is kind of rewritten by 
people, white, white man. people. Yes, white people. <laughs> I said it, white people. Um, so, yeah, and, and, like, it also makes sense because, you know, they speak the language. Yeah. And they have the tools. They have the resources. Mm-hmm. And, and they're the ones who are respected. Yeah, who's going to listen to them? Yeah. Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I did that. And also, it made me feel happy because it was the first time that I could share a project, like an academic project with my dad and he could mm-hmm. understand. Mm, right? Yeah. So I was just like, look dad, I did something. And <laughs> you can understand it too and we can talk about it together. <laughs> and yeah, it was it was like a, I would say a beautiful moment for us together. Yeah. And yeah, and I and I hope to do more of that. Um I don't really know how to expand on that project yet. I've already, you know, recorded him about four or five times for a different video. So he's <laughs> so he's he's always ready for the camera. <laughs> like, Dad, we're doing a video. He's like, Okay, where do you want me? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's great. That's um, awesome. Okay, hold on. Pause. Yeah. Are we second or first generation? Because I'm also Mm -hmm. confused. I've been calling ourselves first generations. Mm -hmm. Okay, so (laughs) I took I took a sociology class on race and ethnicity. Okay. The book that we were reading was a Cornell book. It said that um, people who were born here, uh, born into the host country, yeah, were considered as first generation. Okay. So I was just like, okay, huh, okay, the textbook's saying that we're first generation, so I'm going to call ourselves first generation. Yeah. And then I had a conversation with someone else who was, like, she's our senior, so she's already graduated from sociology. Yeah. And she was just like, well, that doesn't make sense, because if you call yourself a first generation, what are your parents? Because if you don't recognize your parents, they're also taxpayers as well. Oh. So you're erasing their identity. Oh, right? God. I always went back and forth, because the fir- at first I called myself second generation. Mm-hmm. And then, because, you know, my parents, mm-hmm. and then it's, like, first generation, because first born here. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. So, I was just like, I don't want to race my parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a second generation then. <laughs> yeah. So, so I consider myself as a second generation. Okay. Kids who were born into the home country and then immigrated over into the host country as a young child, I would call them as one and a half generation. Okay. Yeah. Because, That's what I thought, too. Yeah. Because, again, like, you don't know what, what's happened. It, obviously, their experience is going to be a little bit different yeah. than people in the second generation. For some, not all, but yeah. for some. Um, yeah, so I'm a second generation because I was born here. Yeah. And my parents, who were born in the host country, sorry, in the home country and came here as adults, yeah. they would be considered as first generations, in yeah. my opinion. Okay, yeah. so we're going to take a short break mm-hmm. and we'll be back. Okay, we're back. Ha- so, have you had other Vietnamese people? No. No? Oh, so I'm the only Vietnamese Yeah, you're the only oh, Vietnamese person. Yes. <laughs> also showing representation. Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I'll talk about the um, Vancouver Vietnamese community. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know you're very affluent in it, or, like, you're very involved. Uh, you have like you have a problem with your Facebook. <laughs> uh, I, would, I would say that. Two years ago, and okay. then I wouldn't say that anymore. But I think I'm involved in my own way. Right. Yeah. And which is kind of a common thing that a lot of, I feel a lot of young Vietnamese Canadians here in Vancouver would also tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there's this political divide in our community. Is it like between the North and the South Vietnamese, um, like what you were talking about earlier? There's that, and there's also of how... of dealing of the way how we should deal um what would you say deal with that sort of pain that comes with being uh, the community of a refugee and Mm -hmm. like how do we deal with that resentment towards Mm -hmm. the home country and when Mm -hmm. i say the home country i mean vietnam right now the Mm -hmm. current state of vietnam as a communist country okay um so there's a lot so there is resentment um some have stronger resentment than others. Okay. Some um, people, and again, I'm saying this, I'm, I'm not saying like this is what, I'm not representing the whole community, yeah, this but is this is from, from like my, your my experience. Yeah. Um, there's some resentment, um, some stronger than others, but there's there are other people who are just trying to move on, trying to live their life. Mm-hmm. And um, it's hard for the community to come together because 
there is that divide of, oh, should we be resentful or should we not be resentful? Oh, like how to deal with it. How to deal with it. Yeah. And also the allegiance to the yellow and red striped flag, which what is called... What do you mean? Um, so... For, for us noobs. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who don't know. Um, well, it's also called the heritage flag. Okay. And it's the flag that was used by the South, uh, the, Repu- the Republic of South Vietnam mm-hmm. government mm-hmm. Um, prior to 1975. Mm-hmm. So this government was the government that, you know, the United States had supported. So as a community here, we are a diaspora community. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people here and other, commun- other Vietnamese communities who are outside of Vietnam, who came as refugees and especially those who are political refugees, mm-hmm. um, want to represent their Vietnamese community or the Vietnamese community mm-hmm. in the area with that flag. Mm-hmm. And some people find it very problematic because, A, from my perspective yeah. and my understandings, um, for me, it's, it's also kind of like, why are you supporting this flag where you had foreign influences come into the country and oh. kind of help support that divide between that two countries right right and i think a lot of for a lot of seniors who hear me say that would call me ignorant and mm-hmm. for saying that because the story about vietnam the vietnam war mm-hmm. some people would say like oh um ho chi minh who was the leader of northern vietnam mm-hmm. he kind of wanted to unite Vietnam, where uh, you want to support the people and you want to um, push away foreign influences because too many foreigners are like exploiting the country or whatnot, mm-hmm. right? And so he was just like, empower the people, rah, rah, rah. Right? <laughs> so, um, so that's one perspective of him. And then um, other people would say, well, like, yes, that's what he was trying to do, but also that was very naive for him to do because um, it didn't really support the country in the end. Right? Yeah. And, like, the economy fell to shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then people were starving. Yeah. And then um, he duped a bunch of uh, people who were in southern Vietnam to come to fight okay. with the northern um, armies. Yeah. And um, the northern people were told lies about how people in south Vietnam were starving and they were suffering in the hands of Westerners who mm-hmm. were Americans, who were French as well. <laughs> well, that, like, Vietnam has a very complicated history. Yeah. And so does a lot of colonized countries. Yeah, so does a lot of colonized countries. And I also do want to point out that people always think about the Vietnam War as the American and Vietnam War that yeah. was from 19, I think, 55 to 1975. Okay. But Vietnam is a country that's experienced so many wars. So to call it the Vietnam War is also positioning our <laughs> privilege as a Western country and being like, okay, well, they, you know, it, that war is only, um, what's it called? That war is only, uh, what's that oh, word? Oh, my God. God. Like the white savior kind of thing? No, no, no. It's like a relevance of us. Oh, yeah, okay. That, that war is only a relevance of us okay. right now, right? But you can't, you can't look at one part of history to understand a country for yeah. what it is, right? Because yeah. To understand that war that ended in 1975 with the Americans, you need to understand the French colonialism that happened prior to then. Right. So there was, like, decades of um, American influence, and then there was, like, 100 years of French colonialism, mm-hmm. and there are, like, centuries of... Was it 50 years with the French? I have to double-check on that, but that was a really long <laughs> <Okay>. time. But <laughs> centuries of Chinese domination. So right. we're, like, we've been a small country mm-hmm. that used to be in three different, like, colonies itself that yeah. came one um, that endured a lot of hardship. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the times that, you know, the fact that communities are so broken apart like, this sort of feeling towards patriotism is a deep feeling for some people because mm-hmm. it's not something new. Like, there has... I People would say that after 1975 was a peacetime for Vietnam because it was the only time that they weren't at war. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, let me reiterate. The negative side of the flag is, oh, it, it 
kind of glorifies the Western influence and mm, yeah. making all American influence in Vietnam like the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. Right? It's like that's something that it should be. Granted, maybe the economy would have been better, but also mm-hmm. there was like a lot of you know exploitation that was happening at that time oh, yeah. as well. So we shouldn't give them the entire credit. Yeah. Being <laughs> so that's one one thing um, why someone would be against the yellow and red stripe flag or the heritage mm-hmm. flag. The other one is, um, well, it doesn't really represent the entire country because mm-hmm. well, what about the northern Vietnamese people? Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of have a problem with that one because um, not all people who are from northern Vietnam supported the northern government, yeah. like the communist government that Ho Chi Minh mm-hmm. led. And I mm-hmm. think that's like um, a very big mis- misconception that people have. And that's where all the resentment towards northern v- Vietnamese people mm-hmm. come from, in, even in these diaspora communities. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people who just look at the flag and feel pain and be like, well, that's a country that doesn't exist anymore. And I want to, you know, move on. And I don't yeah. want to remember the pain of all the things that I've left behind. Mm-hmm. Right? And so then what's happening with all, with the community? Mm-hmm. So when I say the community, it's in quotations. Yeah. Because yeah, the community yeah. are the people who are using this flag. Because these are the people who are, you know, making effort to come together. Yeah. And so because they have a flag, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I identified with this flag, so I'm going to come here. And people who don't identify with the flag, they don't go to the events. Or they do, or but they like kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. But they don't really recognize themselves with that flag. Yeah. And so the people who don't fully supported are kind of on the outside of that border and there's no community around that like there's no community like hey let's be anti you know yellow flag and let's come together right you it's it's kind of what is that term in sociology when you have that one i know it's from durkheim okay it's like this one thing oh it's a, it's a sacred object emil durkheim is one of sociology's founding fathers He was the first theorist to put sociology on the academic map. The sacred object that Mimi is talking about comes from Durkheim's theories on religion, which is the profane sacred dichotomy. What he's saying is that religions have a separation between profane and sacred. Profane are the mundane aspects of life, while the sacred are the aspects of life that are deeply respected. The sacred usually becomes symbols that represent the interests of a certain group. Of course, the Vietnamese community isn't a religion or a cult of any sort. Rather, what Mimi is saying is that the red and yellow flag, or the heritage flag, has become a certain sacred object for the community. It's a sacred object that everybody identifies themselves with, right? Mm -hmm. So it's easier for them to come together. Mm -hmm. Whereas everybody else is just kind of like, "Mm, not too comfortable with that. I'm just going to do my own thing. Mm -hmm. And plus, um, a lot of the people who who came to Vancouver, these um, former Vietnamese refugees, they came here as economic refugees. Right. So just to clarify between the difference between economic and political refugees... I don't think there's an actual UN definition of an economic refugee, mm-hmm. but the UN definition for our political refugees are those who are escaping uh, their home country if they're, you know, facing impending death mm-hmm. or if their like political views are not accepted mm-hmm. and uh, their orientation and whatnot. Right? Yeah. So basically, you're gonna die if you're gonna <laughs> stay in your country. Yeah. Um, um, for political reasons. Yeah. Right. Those who are economic refugees, I would say, are people who kind of leave because of the situation at home, because they're mm-hmm. not able to survive. Mm-hmm. Not because they disagree with the government mm-hmm. and their values. It's because it's just like, well, I'm going to die here anyway, so I need to leave. Mm-hmm. Right? So my parents were econ- economic refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them came to Vancouver because Vancouver is generally a hot spot for a lot of immigrants to come and make business. Right. A lot of the political refugees who came to Canada went to either Ontario or in Quebec. Okay. Quebec because we had that French colonial. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, And, yeah. like, a lot of the seniors could still speak French, so they went there. Mm-hmm. And Ontario because, you know, Ontario. It's is Toronto. Like, it's Toronto. Yeah. Like, political (laughs) over there (laughs) so yeah and then so speaking of economic refugees a lot of these people were not very rich or very poor didn't have good education yeah 
my dad completed grade two and then he had to go work in like the fishing boat mm-hmm. for a fisher as a fisherman since the age of seven. Right. And then he was there until he was nineteen. And then he he knew that like this was no way to live and that he would end up dying and starving to death anyways if he continued to live this way. Because mm-hmm. there's still a lot of corruption. Like there yeah. is still corruption now. Yeah. Ooh. I hope no, <laughs> I hope nobody in Vietnam hears this. <laughs> because there's like censorship and whatnot. But yeah, so he was just like, I need to leave and I feel like a lot of people like him in that situation decide to leave mm-hmm. for the same reason. So again they come here, they didn't have they didn't know how to speak English that well. Some mm-hmm. did better than others. Mm-hmm. But my dad, he, his English skills were a little bit lacking. Yeah. And that was the reason why the United States did not accept him. Oh, okay. Yeah, the United States were a lot stricter. But we can talk about the, that immigration process later. <laughs> That's a good story. Um, yeah, so um, people picked up laborious jobs, mm-hmm. worked in the kitchen, and then they tend to work very long hours and um, they don't have the, the resources or the tools to empower themselves because mm-hmm. so often I hear about, oh, they don't, like, a lot of people don't do certain things because they're afraid of the law and they don't know because they don't know the, the rights. Yeah. Right? So um, a lot of them work long hours. So since they're working long hours, they don't have time to go out and be part of a community. Yeah. Right? Maybe they'll go to the supermarket. They'll meet other people. Yeah. But... Like, there's no time to have oh, these big festivals or whatnot. <laughs> and some of them are just very indifferent mm-hmm. towards the political views. Mm-hmm. Um, and then many people who are also in Vancouver who are Vietnamese, some of them aren't even refugees. Mm-hmm. Like, I've, I have a friend whose mom came here um, because, you know, she got married here. Mm-hmm. And, well, that sounds pretty bad, but like, <laughs> but, but um, there are other people who come here and they're just like, oh, yeah, I just want to open up a business and whatnot, right? Yeah. So th- times have changed. Yeah. I would say people who immigrated here in Vancouver before, from the times from the 80s to the 95s or maybe even a little bit to the end of the 90s yeah. would be economic refugees. Okay. Anybody prior to then would have been a political refugee. Okay. Anybody after the 90s would have been just, you know, just because I want to see what it's like in Canada. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because um, in the 80s and the 90s in Vietnam was called the, um, I'm going to butcher it. People would know it as the Doi Boy uh-huh. time. Um, for a time, I thought it was called Doi Mai, which in Vietnamese means the new era. Okay. But, because there's different accents in, v- in Vietnamese language, right? Yeah. So, the spelling of it, I thought, would was Doi Mai, because yeah. there weren't any accents, but it's actually called Doi Mai. <laughs> I don't know if you heard the difference there. <laughs> no, I, I didn't yeah, hear it. Okay, so it's called Doi Mai, which means to change. Oh, okay. It's to change the economy. So they're a little bit more lenient about, oh, yeah, let's um, work with other um, foreign influences and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not an economist, but it's something to do with, oh, let's trade with other people because working within their own country doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And I think we saw that in World War One and World War Two with Americans, mm-hmm. right? So. so thanks for giving us an overview of the That's an Vietnamese overview. That's the overview of community. the Vietnamese community. Oh, yeah. And then speaking of which, and, and like the community here, I'm a little bit concerned. I was concerned, maybe not so much concerned anymore. Yeah. But it really, it's really up to how we continue our work. But mm-hmm. for second generation, so from kids like me who are born here, we don't, a lot of the times, I feel like some of us don't really connect too much with our Vietnamese-ness. Well, I feel like that's something that a lot of second generation mm-hmm. immigrants do. I mean, like, I feel it the same way, mm-hmm. where I, I don't even speak the language, uh, or Tagalog, which is sad. Yeah. <laughs> and, like... It, it was my first language. It's just that when I went to school, I just lost it. Cause yeah, and but there's a history about Tagalog not being transitioned over yeah. to younger generations too, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, like a lot of my Filipino friends and I, we don't speak it. I mean, we understand it. It's just weird. Oh, that's great. You always understand it. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it is weird because, yeah, we do understand it, but we don't speak it. So we know like all the words. And I feel like in some way we kind of make our own kind of language and our own kind of norms where we we would just use like certain words to describe how we're feeling because you know sometimes in different languages there aren't the same translation as like in English Mm -hmm. like it doesn't have the same connotation or feelings Mm -hmm. so I mean those words are used and then we have like Filipino jokes like not even like traditional or or, like 
motherland like jokes but it's like second generation jokes yeah and it's a it's a its own kind of subgroup itself yeah Something I learned in folklore class. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Tell us. Tell well, us. No, what did you learn I, I in folklore I can't class? really remember too much because it's been a long time. But I like it's it's very off. It's um, it's a well, it's a it's a normal thing to have. Yeah. For because it's folk groups are considered as groups who kind of. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna butcher this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, like different members who kind of understand. Um, common themes or common jokes Mm -hmm. and as second generations who are from a Filipino community yeah of course you're your own subgroup because you don't identify the same way as first generations or as um young kids your age in Filipino Mm -hmm. is that right yeah yeah so it's it's totally different your your own community you come up with your own jokes you come up with your own understandings of things yeah yeah and it's a very common thing. Yeah. And it's, and it's good that you guys found each other because so often here yeah. in Vancouver, where are all my Vietnamese friends? <laughs> I, I do, now I do, like, the end of my post-undergraduate, I do yeah. have a small group of Vietnamese friends, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. And uh, together we can, you know, make those jokes and poke, yeah. poke fun of the stuff that our parents <laughs> say, right? Yeah. It's like, did you go through that? Like, hell yeah. <laughs> that sort of stuff. But um, there's also different stereotypes within second generations of what a Vietnamese people would be. Like, oh, you got your Namers. Oh, same. Yeah. yeah. You got your Namers. You got your, like, really whitewashed Vietnamese <laughs> people who kind of, like, want to digress away from the Vietnamese identity or didn't have the opportunity mm-hmm. to, you know, get involved with Vietnamese culture. Culture! What is culture? <laughs> Anyways, and then there's, like, different people who are just, like, who, you know, speak the language to each other. Yeah. And some people kind of find it a little strange. It's like, ooh, that's a little strange. <laughs> and it's kind of a hard thing to explain. But, yeah, so community is a little bit fragmented. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's, like, okay, because I guess it's fine to be different. Because even in Canada, right, yeah. our, our thing is, like, diversity is the best thing yeah. to have because you can understand each other, and that's just how we cope with things, mm-hmm. right? So... I'm a little bit, what I would say, I'm a little bit torn on how I should view the Vietnamese community here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'd like to have a support group because I want to teach my kids Vietnamese one day, yeah. right? And I look at the people in the United States, the Vietnamese community, they're thriving. And I would mm-hmm. say because they're a lot of them are political refugees, mm-hmm. were political refugees, and they kind of, you know, pay tribute to the yellow flag. So they are right. a very strong community, and they have a history together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their kids can speak Vietnamese to other people because there's other Vietnamese people around, <laughs> right? And I remember going to this camp, this Vietnamese camp, and there was that, someone asked, and they were like, I'm a little bit concerned about the future generation. Like, I want to have my kids speak Vietnamese, but I don't have the confidence that I'll be able to teach them mm-hmm. Vietnamese. Yeah. And then the guy was just like, well, you know, look around. You got all these, you are Vietnamese brothers and sisters around you. You got your aunts and your uncles yeah. to support you to be, speak Vietnamese. And this was in Texas. And Texas is a very great community. <laughs> and because um, Texas used to be a base for all, yeah. the, um, all the military men to come learn how to pilot. Yeah. Like, military men in Vietnam, right? Yeah. The man was just like, look around you. Your Vietnamese brothers and sisters are around. And I'm sitting in here. I'm like, I'm from Vancouver. Where are my <laughs> brothers and sisters? Who's going to teach my kids when I'm not around? Right? So I was, I was still a little bit concerned. Still not a little bit, still not convinced. So yeah. that's where, that's where my concern is from. Because it's just like, I want a community. And I want, I don't want my kids to forget where what their family history is like Mm -hmm. and I think it's also because I don't want them I want them to be able to communicate to my parents okay they've done so much yeah they brought us here and they sacrificed so much and it's just like they've worked their whole lives just so that they could give us a better future Mm -hmm. right and the fact that if you know if they wanted a better life and then their grandkids can't even talk to them how sad is that? Yeah. And the fact that there isn't a community. They don't have a lot of friends. And so they feel isolated. Oh, Right? So yeah. it's, it's, like, kind of really sad. Yeah. Right? And so I think that's kind of my way of wanting to pay back to my parents. Mm-hmm. But also, I want them to remember that they have a very rich history. And they mm-hmm. should be proud of mm-hmm. how they came here. Or like, yeah. Yeah, how, how they came to be and whatnot, right? I think that's also, like, what I'm worried about. Like, when I have kids... How 
how are they going to be in touch with their Filipinoness? Because obviously, like, like I'm Filipino, but I don't have like the same Filipino culture, or like I didn't grow up in the Philippines. Like I have a different kind of Filipino culture mm. as my parents. Again, like what we talked about mm. earlier. Like how how do we give that to them? Mm-hmm. How will it translate? Because it's going to be a different Filipino culture. Like our kids, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, like, accepting the fact that they're going to have a different subculture themselves. Yeah. Right? Because um, fourth generations, third generations are not going to be the same as the first or second generations. Mm-hmm. And I guess we also have to understand that our ethnic culture isn't something that's boxed off. That's yeah. something that we can, like, put on them. Because it's not, yeah. like, a real thing, right? Yeah. Just because we're Filipino or we're Vietnamese doesn't mean we have, like, a set of things that <laughs> makes us <laughs> Vietnamese or Filipino, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that I'm having you know i'm still trying to figure out myself yeah because that feeling is so real inside of me yeah yeah it's something that i really want to share and i also have to understand that my understanding of vietnamese-ness isn't the same as what it is in vietnam right now yeah they have their own thing because you know i think with a lot of diaspora communities they Mm -hmm. have the set culture that I talked about this in my migrations class, but mm-hmm. um, people who immigrate over, they bring in their understanding of the culture of the home country with mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And culture is supposed to continue to grow as the same way as how second generations continue to branch out the their understandings of what it means to be in their ethnic identity and then the third generations like that that's an example of how culture is growing right right? so but this idea of the culture of being this stagnant thing that's something because our first generations brought over with them Mm -hmm. and like they just want to salvage it right because that's (laughs) that's the memory of their home yeah especially for diaspora communities right yeah so that's something that we need to be very cognizant 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 yeah (laughs) yeah cognizant of and but I feel like like that's also not really a bad thing mm-hmm. to to have really. But as yeah. long as it doesn't, we don't use that to harm ourselves. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. this is how we should be and whatnot, <laughs> right? But yeah, yeah, great. Okay, so we're gonna take another break. Okay, great. Okay. Okay, so one of the things that I also talked about, Mimi. Um, when I went to New York, so, okay, backtrack. So I went to New York (laughs) and, um, I watched Miss Saigon. In our discussion about Miss Saigon, there are a bunch of points that won't make sense unless you know the whole story. So we might as tell you what happens in Miss Saigon. Sorry for the spoilers. The Broadway musical takes place in Vietnam right before the end of the Vietnam War. A Vietnamese bar girl, Kim, falls in love with an American GI, Chris, and they get married. They plan to go back to America together, but because of the unfortunate circumstances of war, they are separated, and Kim is left behind in Vietnam. Kim is hopeful that Chris will return and waits for years and never remarries, but she has ended up in poverty with Chris's son, and is still hoping that Chris will come back and take her to America. But... Chris has already remarried in America and only finds out years later that he has a son with Kim. So he and his current wife go back to find her. Kim's lifelong wish and goal is to go to America and raise her son there. So when Chris gets there, she begs the new wife to take his son. At the end, Chris agrees to raise him as an American boy. Kim gives her son to them and tragically kills herself at the end. And that's the story of Miss Saigon, which is actually based on Puccini's opera, Madame Butterfly. For the first time, and you know, as an avid supporter of Leia Salonga, who is a very popular... Leia Filip- Salonga! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> who voiced the singing voice of Jasmine yes. and... Um, Mulan. Mulan, yes! yes. <laughs> oh my god, I, I forgot that! that. I got you. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, so she starred in the original Miss Saigon, and then they revived it this year, I believe, mm-hmm. um, with a new cast and a new production team. So after I, I watched it, I was ready to, you know, be very skeptical of it. And, yeah, I was very skeptical of it, <laughs> and I was very critical of it. And especially because I did read one of the articles that you um, shared on Facebook. Oh, you read something that I posted. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It was, it was about... Um, 
Again, these Vietnamese girls who went to see Miss Saigon and they were also prepared to hate it and how they were just very infuriated because that's not how Mm -hmm. they experience Vietnam or like what they believe the Vietnamese community is about. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how why can't they tell their own stories Mm -hmm. about the Vietnam War? Why is it in this perspective of, you know, the white man savior Mm -hmm. who's, you know, America is great and, like, everyone wants to flee Vietnam because they hate Vietnam and um, and it was all very stereotypical as well. Yeah. Like, it made me angry to see, like, the Asian men portrayed as animals Mm -hmm. and how the Asian women who were not, who was not the main character, all the other Asian women were very sexualized and, Mm -hmm. like, as if they were whores mm-hmm. and I don't know and even the guy was just so self-righteous yeah that it made me so angry I was yeah. like how dare you not care about her yeah. like you made her wait for you yeah and then now you think you can just take her child away <laughs> then again she's saying that that's her goal is to give you know yeah. her child away to America yeah and in the, in, in the story Chris which is the the main um yeah the main character the main, the main white guy the main white guy in yeah. the story um like he he didn't well, did he want the kid? I can't remember. I know his wife, Ellen, didn't want to have the child. Because it's yeah. like, this is your child. Oh, my God. Why are we taking this kid away from this own home country? Yeah. And also, it's kind of like, well, he's not my kid, right? Yeah. Um, so, white man comes to the country. Um, so, it's the end of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War. <laughs> 1975, American and Vietnam. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so, the war is ending. Everybody needs to leave. And then the people need saving because, oh, we need to get out of this hellhole country it's there's nothing for us to do here and like that's kind of a perspective of immigrant like new immigrants or like people in these countries and these sort I, I, I don't want to call war torn? yeah war torn countries yeah war torn countries that's how they're perceived like there's nothing for them mm-hmm. uh, for them the home country and they all want to go to a different country mm-hmm. and they should be grateful but in reality it's kind of like nobody wants to leave their home it's yeah. scary leaving yeah like it's scary for me to think about moving out of Canada even though I know English and I know like I, I should be fine living out in other countries and whatnot mm-hmm. but. Canada's my home. Vancouver is my home. Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave. If there's a war, I'm going to be sad. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? So, like, you have to understand that. Like, people, like, my dad and my mom, they didn't want to leave Vietnam because yeah. Vietnam was their home. Even though they didn't have food, they didn't have money, most of the time, their families were there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was just going to say that was very representative the ways that they represented the um the prostitutes there mm-hmm. many of which um were fine with the work that they were doing because they felt empowered that they're making their own money mm-hmm. and uh they could do whatever they want mm-hmm. like they weren't tied down and mm-hmm. i'm sure some some prostitutes didn't feel that way but not all prostitutes were portrayed as though we were miss saigon where they yeah. all wanted to find a white man or american man to yeah. leave out of the country Mm-hmm. Right? Not everybody was desperate. So, again, it's very important for us as, um, like, second generations to listen to the stories of our our, our parents or our mm-hmm. other family members who came here as immigrants who had a history of um, being part of a war-torn country and, like, listen to what their struggles were like. And especially for those who don't speak the language of the host country, not to say that, you know, they're they're like weak or anything like that but it's like give them the tools and have their stories be told because you know one of the one of these days they're not going to be around anymore and -hmm. their stories are so important because nobody else knows about them Mm -hmm. so you need to preserve them in a way however you do it you know pass them down to your future kids tell them make them to videos video projects like <laughs> like i've done it i don't know like whatever you think it's it's very important that you tell the stories in not only your perspective as a person of color mm-hmm. but you know tell the stories of your family history and how you came to be here mm-hmm. and how your community came to he- be here um because so often it's just like the stories are not told in that perspective yeah they're they're told in a way that's you know without the actual experience yes yeah yeah for sure well thank you Mimi yeah, no for problem. being on the podcast yeah no worries this is really fun thank you for having me that's the end of our conversation with Mimi but I still need to ask her one more thing 
If you're new to the podcast, I like to finish off my conversations by asking my friends what piece of media they've recently read, watched, or listened to that they would recommend to others. I started this podcast by thinking of ways to challenge mainstream media's representation of certain groups. And I wonder what my friends say is a good piece of media that says something positive about us minorities. So, what did Mimi say? So, I thought about this for a while, Cecilia, and (laughs) for sure, I could not think of anything because... I don't know. It's it's because like in the in the media, especially in the normative media we have, of mm-hmm. course, it's kind of filtered in a way where it's because I'm thinking about Fresh Off the Boat. Fresh Off the Boat had a lot of potential. I feel, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the episodes were like, yeah, right on. Like that, yeah, I experienced that, and that's great that you're telling the story. But um, it's kind of, and I I've already seen some of the news outlets because Eddie Huang is no longer involved in the production. Okay. And I feel like it's because the storyline is going towards to not in the way that he wanted it. And I don't know if it's because, because I've seen some episodes and some of them are about like, it's kind of like, it's just any other family show you would watch on ABC, but it's just with an Asian face. Right. So it's kind of like playing the, yeah, we're being representative because this is an Asian family, but is yeah. it really representative because the stories don't really align with um, right. how things are? Because mm-hmm. I remember that one episode about Thanksgiving. I was like, who who celebrates Thanksgiving in a Chinese <laughs> household like this, the way that they're portraying it? Maybe there are. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe it's my own bias. Maybe that's not why Eddie Huang yeah. um, left. I know there are other creators or writers who are also Asian descent, like mm-hmm. Alan Wong. Um but, like, I don't know how much is, you know, filtered out. Because at the end of the day, you have an audience. You yeah. need to serve, right? And yeah. Who, who, and who's, who's your gonna, audience? Yeah. Right? And then... Who's going to pay the bills to continue the show? Exactly. And then, like, who is supervising it? <laughs> right? Yeah. Who's the executive yeah, producer? Yeah, executive producer. So, I couldn't really think of anything because there's always something that... Is of critique. Not saying that you should not watch any more TV or yeah. any movies. I found first year university very hard for me because that's <laughs> the first time I was like, wow, there's like a lot of problematic things happening in these TV shows. But I think you can watch anything. You just need to be very conscious of, you know, like of how things are produced. And mm-hmm. um, as long as you understand that some things aren't okay. Oh, yeah. I also want to go back on the point that I said about uh, listening to the stories of your own parents, Mm -hmm. uh, immigration stories. And I know a lot of people don't have access to that because um, sometimes those stories are very painful for your Mm -hmm. parents to talk about. Yeah. And I think the best way to deal with that, because it's going to be a very difficult thing to to pry out of your parents and sometimes yeah. you're not comfortable with doing it. Yeah. It's just to, you know, do your own research and mm-hmm. listen to other stories of other communities. Mm-hmm. Um, learn more about uh, the situation of the home country mm-hmm. and, you know, like what we always learn in post-secondary, who's the writer? Who published your work, <laughs> right? <laughs> Whose perspective is this from? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's also applied to pretty much anything that we um, encounter, mm-hmm. even if it includes pop culture. Yeah, for sure. That's it for this episode of Visible Minorities. Thank you to Mimi for being on the podcast with me and for going beyond and helping me edit this episode. If you want to check out more of Mimi's works, you can see her video projects on her Vimeo page, vimeo.com slash with three N's at the end. That's vimeo.com slash M-I-N-G-U-Y-E-N-N-N If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and or Google Play. Next week is the last episode of this season. I know, it seems like I only just started a few weeks ago. But on this last episode of Visible Minorities, I'll be talking to two of my friends, Eliza Aprilla and James Infante. We'll be talking about our experiences in the Catholic education system in Vancouver and growing up being surrounded by second-generation Filipinos. So, until then, we'll talk soon.